0: Good morning. How are you guys doing? My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John, Chapter 19. That's where our our scripture reading will be. Uh, Open your Bibles, New Testament's fourth, fourth book in, John Chapter 19. I'll be reading verses 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. I shared a statistic uh, a couple of months ago that on average, only 10 people will cry at your funeral. That's kind of discouraging. I hope to have higher numbers than 10 weep at my funeral. Uh, We struggle to find people to grieve with us. We struggle as humans uh, to suffer with one another well. Uh, There is help though. You can pay for help, actually. There's a whole deal of called professional mourners. You can hire people to come and cry at your funeral. You can even prepare for that. It's a deal that goes way, way back thousands of years. We actually see instances of this throughout Scripture. It's still going on. Uh, there's a place in Essex, England called Rent a Mourner. And then here in uh, the United States, TLC had a TV show called Best Funeral Ever, which is an odd TV show. And they highlighted a funeral home in Texas that also has professional mourners. You can make about $68 for two hours of professionally mourning someone. There's also another industry that's cropped up to help us because we don't suffer well together. And that is professional huggers. This is a real deal, and I'm sure you're shocked to to hear this. It kind of started in Portland. Uh, There's a woman named Samantha Hess, and as I understand the story, Samantha was downtown at the market and saw a gentleman with a a homemade sign that said, Hugs, $2, and he had a very long line, and she said, business opportunity. Uh, Samantha started a business called Cuddle Up to Me. And for $80 an hour, uh, Samantha or one of her professional huggers will hug you appropriately. And Samantha wants you to know that she's fine being the big spoon or the little spoon. Either one. It's a joke. Tough crowd. Best of Portland did a, a highlight of her company and it had 17 million downloads throughout the country. Interestingly, reading a little bit about Samantha, she says her heart, as a professional hugger, honestly, authentically, is to suffer with people. She said most of her clients are going through suffering themselves or have debilitating diseases, and she wants to be able to look them in the eye and let them know that they're loved and let them know they care. Here's the deal, I hope that I never have to go with the professional mourner-hugger route I hope that you don't. I hope that we're cultivating community around us that is people that, that understand how to suffer with us. And I hope as we learn to follow Jesus here at New Hope that we'll become a community that learns to suffer with one another. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're in the third week of our series called Last Words. And this series is guiding us through Lent, which is the 40-day period from Ash Wednesday through Monday, Thursday traditionally on the church calendar is to prepare our hearts to celebrate uh, the Lord. We're looking at the seven last words or phrases of Jesus from the cross. The context of the cross matters. Context always matters in Scripture. In this instance, as we've talked about the last two weeks, Jesus, as He's hanging from the cross, had to push up to breathe, and you have to breathe to hawk. so each of these words comes with great agony and pain. They're meaningful in and of themselves. This gives them deeper meaning. The first week, the first set of words were words of mercy. Jesus looked at those who were crucifying them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He let go, so those of us who follow Him should also let it go. Last week we looked at the second set of words, and these were words of grace. Mercy is not getting something we deserve, grace is getting a free gift we don't deserve. There's this criminal who has a change of heart, understands who he is, understands who God is, understands who Jesus is, and looks to Jesus for life. He says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He sees Jesus as the king. And Jesus says, truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise or the place of the righteous. These are words of grace. This criminal did not deserve to be in the place of the righteous, and that's the whole point. That's grace. Grace is offensive, To those of us who think we can earn God's favor and amazing to those of us who realize we cannot. This week in the third set of words, we're now going to see words of compassion, words of compassion. Jesus was essentially from the cross, the passage that we read earlier, making final arrangements, in light of his death. This was not uncommon. Josephus, the historian, talked about how this was a common practice amongst those who were being crucified, making final arrangements as they're dying. This on its face is what Jesus was doing, but there's much more going on. To understand what's going on, we understand who he was talking to. John tells us, his eyewitness account, John, the writer of the gospel, was one of the ones there. There were five people, John says, that Jesus is interacting with uh, right in front of him in this scene. One is uh, Mary, his mother. Two is Mary's sister. And scholars are pretty confident that Mary's sister is a woman named Salome who was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the writer of our eyewitness account, one of Jesus' disciples, or both of them were Jesus' disciples. John, who's at the foot of the cross, is likely Jesus' first cousin. And this makes sense. John's at all the really important places in the gospel. He's constantly with Jesus. We seem to think he's the closest to Jesus, sitting beside him at Last Supper, at the foot of the cross, running with Peter to the tomb. John never gives his name in the gospel, But he affectionately refers to himself five times as the one that Jesus loves. Isn't that a wonderful way to think of yourself, the one that Jesus loves? So we have uh, Jesus' mother, Jesus' aunt, Jesus' first cousin, and then we're told we have Mary, the wife of Clopas, which scholars think traditionally uh, Mary was uh, was also Jesus' aunt, married to Joseph's brother, Jesus' father. So, two aunts, a mother, a first cousin, there's a lot of family, that makes sense. And then we have a third Mary, there's lots of Marys in Jesus' life, and this is Mary Magdalene, we call her. And if you just Google Mary Magdalene, there's all kind of historical foolishness out there about who this woman was, it's rubbish, Uh, there's nothing to it. What we do know about Mary, she's from a small little village on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and we know that she had seven demons that dominated her life, and that Jesus set her free from that oppression. We know that she was a faithful follower of Jesus. She's in many scenes, including the resurrection that we'll look at in a number of weeks. So Jesus has has family right here at the foot of the cross. The English writer Samuel Johnson said this, there is nothing that quite focuses the mind like the knowledge that one is about to be hanged. And I think that's true. Uh, When we're experiencing imminent death, and it's a prolonged, painful death, we have every right to think we're going to be focused on our own suffering and focused on our own death. We see that in Jesus, and yet we see so much more. We see in Jesus, as from the, his first saying, this capacity to think about and care for and enter the suffering of others. Can we can we uh, imagine what 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 his mother Mary, who he principally has this conversation with, that we're looking at today? What, what's she feeling? Her, her baby boy, back in Luke 2, this is the same Mary that Luke tells us held her baby boy, and it says that Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And it's the same Mary that, that eight days later, went to the temple to dedicate Jesus, ran into Simeon. It's the same Mary that Simeon told her to her, her joy, that her baby boy would be the salvation not only of the Jewish nation, but of all the nations on earth. And then quickly, with shock, she heard from the same Simeon, this baby boy, that Jesus would be the sword that pierces her heart. And she began to experience that. We see instances of that in the gospel. When he's a young man, 12, he's lost in Jerusalem for a few days. That pierces a mom's heart. And then we see that there's dysfunction in the family. Jesus' brothers are nowhere to be seen at the foot of the cross. There's this interesting story earlier in the gospel. Jesus has started his ministry. He's preaching. The religious leaders think he's demon-possessed. And Mary and the brothers show up at the house he's teaching at to take him away because they essentially agree with the religious leaders. That'll cause some family dysfunction. That pierces a mom's heart. And then certainly the scene that we're looking at today. Can we even imagine what would have been muscle? You don't have to be a mother to imagine, to watch your baby boy. Beaten within an inch of his life, carrying the patibulum up the up the hill, falling again and again, being nailed to a tree, being stripped, being hung on a cross. As I was researching this, I'd never heard this before, but dug in and discovered that when we when we think of the visual depictions of the cross, it's always uh, super high up on a hill, super removed. But we know factually that the Roman cross, the typical Roman cross, was seven feet tall, basically here. That means that, that Jesus was, was face to face with his mom. She, she, she could hear him wheezing to try to breathe. She could hear him praying. She could smell his blood and his sweat and hear his tears. And he could hear her tears as well. He could connect with her suffering. He could feel it. And the same Johnson said he had every right just to think about himself, but he didn't. He chose to suffer with those he loved. Jesus uh, is caring about his mom because we think Joseph has passed away probably a long time ago. We don't have any evidence after the early uh, chapters in the Gospels about Joseph. We think he passed away before Jesus started his public ministry. Jesus is the eldest son. He's responsible for his mom. There's no one more vulnerable in the first century than, than a woman who is widowed. Jesus is concerned about this. Yes, he's going through agony. He's concerned about his mom And he addresses her really close. She's right there. Woman. Now, if I called any female woman, I'd be in deep trouble. But it's important to know that that in the first century, that was an appropriate greeting. And I think in this is, is also compassion because Jesus, They're in Jerusalem, nobody knows who Mary is. If Jesus lets the jeering crowd and the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders know who his mom is, she's at greater risk. If he was like, hey, mom, that would put her at greater risk. So he chooses to woman. And then he obviously can't move his hands, so he must have been directing his eyes to John who was standing close by. Here is your son. And then John, back to Mary. Here is your mother. Now John's mother's right there too. He's not saying replace your mom, John. He's like, John, treat her like you treat your mom. Please take care of her. Look at her. She's vulnerable. I'm piercing her heart right now. Take care of her. John, perhaps more than anybody else, was the person John tr- Jesus trusted most. John wants us to know as the eyewitness to the gospel that he, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, was obedient. And he gives us this line that we read earlier. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Tradition holds that Mary went to live with John in Ephesus until the end of her days. Yes, we're seeing a man making final arrangements from the cross. But we're seeing so much more. We are witnessing this idea of compassion. What is compassion? It comes from a Latin word to mean to suffer together. Uh, the Greek word that's used most commonly means to, to feel things in, in our bowels, to feel them in our gut. I, I define compassion as gut-wrenching. And there was a Jewish idiom or saying at the time that, that to feel compassion is to be moved from your bowels. So the next time you're stuck in the bathroom for a long time and someone knocks, you can be like, hey, give me some time. I'm working on my compassion in here. <laughs> Better, more laughter than the first service. Bathroom jokes in church. Probably don't go with that. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite writers, defines compassion like this. Compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside someone else's skin. It's the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. Living in someone else's skin. I like that. At its core, compassion is feeling for someone else combined with taking the steps to relieve or reduce their suffering. I have a list of like living definitions that I'm always tinkering with to my dying day, and my living active definition for compassion right now is suffering with those we love. I think when we're, when we're showing compassion for someone else, we are suffering with those we love and we see that on full display here on the cross. Uh, uh, One Christmas ago, uh, we had family come from Wisconsin uh, for a visit, Corey's uh, sister and her husband and uh, their two small uh, children, my niece and nephew. They brought lots of gifts with them and they also brought the flu with them. So about the second night, their little boy, uh, God bless him, threw up and then A couple hours later, the little girl threw up, and then Corey's sister threw up, and and then their husband threw up, and I'm just like, oh, no. And my wife and I, we're wired differently. She's a better human than I am, and we respond differently to these kinds of things. My wife goes into default uh, uh, compassion mode, as a mom does, and she's entering into their suffering, and what can I do to help, and what food can let me, do you need a shower, whatever. Whatever she can do. I go into the mode like the plague's breaking out and I've got to protect the planet. And so I gathered all the cleaning supplies at our house and I literally had this massive thing of antiseptic wipes. And I'm following our family around as they're throwing up and stumbling and mumbling and I'm wiping down everything they touch. Just like, hey, you doing okay? And I'm just wiping down. I've got the mask and the gloves and then I found this cool antiseptic spray that I just perpetually went throughout the house, just spraying it everywhere. Uh, so our house was smelling like, like vomit in a mixture of like garden delight, air freshener. It was pretty horrific. That night, because um, I was meant to save the planet, I quarantined myself up in a room, and I was sleeping, and our daughter, uh, Jubilee, comes in the middle of the night, and you know she's standing over me, whimpering a little bit, and she says, Daddy, I threw up, and I said oh, honey, don't, don't touch me. <laughs> um, air hug. <laughs> this is a true story. It's, it's embarrassing. And so then I'm like, I kind of shelter. I'm like, let's go back in your room. And of course, I find s- stuff to clean up. And I'm like, you stay there. And I leave her there whimpering with vomit on her, and I walk downstairs, and I get my gloves, and I get my mask, and I get the bag and the spray. And then I wake my wife up, and she gives me that, that look only a wife can give when she sees her husband in full garb, and like, you're ridiculous. She's different than me. <laughs> she was showing compassion. I was showing fear and other things. Uh, we, uh, we, we cleaned uh, up the room. I cleaned up the room. She cleaned up our daughter, bathed her, cared for her with no care and concern of herself and then she slept with her that night. I could not believe she was sleeping with one of the infected ones, just unbelievable. That's compassion, suffering with those that we love, no thought of ourselves. This was a word, I mean there's lots of words that get attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. It's interesting that this word compassion is maybe used more than any other word to describe Jesus, when the eyewitness writers are trying to come up with a word to describe Jesus, this word comes up again and again. Here are just a few instances. When they saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now a leper came to him, employing him, kneeling down to him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I am willing, be cleansed. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the byre, and the bear stood still. And he said, to, young man, I say to you, rise. When, Pete, when Jesus god incarnate saw human suffering it was gut-wrenching to him it was gut-wrenching it tore him apart and it drove him to action it drove him to enter into the suffering because he loved other people the the scriptures tell us that god knit us together in the womb we're fearfully and wonderfully made that we're made in our image and it's so interesting as we learn more and more about the brain and the body We've got neurons throughout our body. Some neurons uh, fire when we take an action, like move like this. Other neurons, if you get hit or wounded, you're feeling that. But we've about 10 to 20% of our neurons, scientists have just discovered these are called mirror neurons. And these neurons fire when we sense someone else in pain. We're literally wired and created by God to be compassionate. This idea of compassion also links up with that idea of grace we talked about last week. If we truly understand that we are saved by grace, that we don't deserve to be in a place of a righteous, we can never earn our way there, that God has given us this free gift and we enter into it, it suddenly equips us to see other people differently. When we think we're righteous and we have self-righteousness, it's so incredibly difficult to be compassionate. Frankly, because we think we're better than others. But when we understand the ground's level at the foot of the cross, that all is grace, and that we're all brought into relation with God by grace... It allows us to see what one author said, to see others with grace-healed eyes. We begin to see people differently. And we, we experience that with our first couple of scenes at the cross. Jesus saw the jeering crowd differently. He saw the Roman soldiers differently. He saw the religious leaders differently. He saw his mother and his cousin and his aunts and this woman he freed from oppression differently. He saw them with compassion. Even though he's going through agony, he chooses by love to enter into their space and suffer with them. Jesus was a man of compassion. He suffered with those He loved. Those of us who follow Him are also called to do the same thing. If we are truly following our Lord, if we're becoming people of compassion, choosing to enter suffering with others because we love them, then it's likely, with all due respect, we'll put professional mourners and professional huggers out of business. Amen? Amen? You guys want professional huggers. That's where you didn't have a hearty amen. You like that idea. I, uh, how does this play out in our lives? What, what, how does this land in our life? K- kind of two thoughts that I've been pondering with regards to, to compassion. And what does it look like for me to grow in this? Uh, I, as, as many of you know, I, I love to backpack. I, I go uh, most years with a, a, a group of friends, and we go to a different national park. I've done a, a lot of other backpacking in my life. And backpacking, we have never done it, it's hiking for a long time. Most of our trips are like, you know, 35, 40 miles sometimes. And our packs, most people have lighter packs than me. I like a couple extra amenities when I go on the trail. So my pack's about like 38 pounds, which is a lot. So you're carrying like a 38-pound pack for, you know, 35, 40 miles, up tons of elevation. It's, it's suffering, and some of you are sitting there thinking, why would you ever use your vacation time to do that? That's ludicrous. Well, because I get to see sites like this, and I could throw up many more pictures, that's Grand Tetons National Park. I love it, and as, I've, as I was pondering this topic, I think one of the things I like is the suffering. And I don't, I don't mean that in a sadistic kind of way. It's good suffering, it hurts, it's a good workout, but it, and it is painful, by the second or third day, the points where your pack attaches, like here on your hips and here on your shoulders, at least for me, are painful to the touch. So when you put it on in the morning and you're like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna go a couple thousand feet up. And, uh, and you know, eight miles, you're kind of like "Whoa!" And when we're walking and it's hard and we're going uphill, there's not a lot of talking. We all know what each other's experiencing. <laughs> you don't have to tell each other, you don't have to cultivate compassion. We just have compassion for each other because we're experiencing it in real time, which leads to this idea. Our suffering fuels our compassion. The things that we go through are hard in life equip us to be more compassionate people. Paul says it this way to the Corinthian church. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now watch what he does here. What does God do? He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. If you're human, you have a beating heart, it doesn't take a lot to generate sympathy for people. You see somebody going through something bad, sympathy is like I feel bad for you. But sympathy is from a distance. It's really, really difficult to be compassionate unless you yourself have gone through something similar and suffering. Now, the first time, I want you to think through something that you've gone through in your life that's really, really difficult and painful, and maybe right now it's something you're going through. If not, it'll come soon because we live in the shadow lands. First thing you should do when you go through suffering is lament and get around community and cry and cry out to God and be angry and doubt and all that's in Scripture. It's very holy, and I encourage you to do that. It's healthy. But in time, as you heal, I want to encourage all of us as we go through things and even look back now at our lives and what we've gone through and see that as potentially fueling our compassion, equipping us to be uniquely compassionate to someone who's going through the same thing. Have you ever been through a broken relationship or a divorce? It's horrific but God's uniquely fueling you and preparing you to care in an exceptional way. That's what Paul's telling us for people that are going through things. Have you been through cancer or really a struggle with disease or a health problem? God is preparing you in a unique way when you encounter people like that to have genuine compassion, not sympathy from a distance, but you've been there. You know what chemo is like. You know what going through a divorce is like. You can enter into that space with compassion and suffer with that person. Uh, We have friends, uh, the Kellys, and we told their story a little bit. Uh, They're a part of our life group, an amazing family. And uh, Years ago, they they lost two children over 18 months, which I, I can't imagine what that was like. And they're remarkable. Jesus has been faithful to them and has woven that into their story as they still grieve and mourn. That never goes away. Uh, but they've come to see it as, as a way God's equipped them to serve and to love. And if I, if I encountered and I do, it's one of the most difficult parts of my job, people that lose children, they're the first people that I would call. Because I don't know what that's like, but they do. And they've come to a place by God's grace that they want me to connect them with those people. Because they can enter into that space and not just have sympathy, but have compassion. I was at a church for 18 years and it was a wonderful church an amazing experience and a rapidly growing church and not perfect but largely healthy. And I frankly didn't have much compassion for pastors that struggled because frankly I hadn't struggled much. And then I came to New Hope here five years ago, we knew it was going to be a rebirth and a turnaround. It was a little more difficult than we anticipated. I wasn't equipped necessarily with the experience to to deal with that type of thing. I hadn't seen it before or experienced it. And by God's grace, we've passed through that, and we're growing healthy as a church, and a lot of that is attributed to many of you, and I'm grateful for that. But one thing that's done in me personally is that when I encounter pastors in this city, and I regularly probably have one to two coffees a month with folks like this, and they're going through a really tough church situation, I don't just have sympathy. I have compassion. Suffering fuels our compassion. Secondly, as I've been processing, what does this look like for our life? True compassion, I think, is is a moving experience. True compassion moves us to action. How do you know if you're experiencing compassion? You'll see it reflected in your life, what you're actually doing. Again, I think most of us naturally can have sympathy for someone. I feel for, bad for you. Some of us have empathy for people. I feel for you. My mirror neurons are kicking in. I'm feeling for you. That's not compassion. Compassion moves us to action. And I think we see this as the writers of Scripture use that word for our Lord. Go back to the verses I read. He had compassion, and then what happened? He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed The leper, he raised the dead. Compassion is a moving experience. It moves us to action. Perhaps Jesus' most famous story about compassion is a well-known story called the Good Samaritan, a parable. A man is beaten to within an inch of his life, left on a road. Three people pass by. I've got to think they all had sympathy for the man. But only one had compassion. And here's how we know it. Here's how Jesus is. These are his words. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was and when he saw him he had what? What did he have? You can participate. This is where that's cool. Uh, He had what? Compassion. How do we know he had compassion? Jesus tells us. He, He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. That's compassion. The earliest followers of Jesus absolutely understood this. Sociologists and historian I love reading on this topic say that one of the reasons Christianity kind of rose up and spread all over the world was because of plagues. Literally, it'll be explained. The plague of Galen occurred in 165 to 180 AD. Five million. People died, and back then in ancient cities, they were walled in and super, super dense, far more dense than like San Francisco or New York City. People are packed in. There's no antibiotics. There's no hand soap. Few people showered, that kind of deal. So when a pandemic hit or plague hit, it spread like wildfire. And here's what happened. This was the go-to. This is how they dealt with it. You just left the city. And the rich people left first, and city officials left next. Guess who didn't leave the cities? Guess who, guess who, not only, we know this historically, not only didn't leave the cities, but entered the cities willingly. Followers of Jesus. True. We know this time after time after time. It wasn't just a one instance thing. The plague of Cyprian, named after the bishop, Cyprian, because he's the one who wrote about it and we learned a lot about it. 250 to 270 AD, 5,000 people every day died in Rome, including two emperors. Two-thirds of the city of Alexandria died and it had a 50% death rate. It didn't, it didn't bother the Christians at all. Followers of Jesus entered into these cities caring for and entering the suffering because they love people. In 260 A.D., a bishop at Corinth, this is part of his Easter sermon, 260 A.D., in the midst of this plague, says this. This is part of his sermon. Most of our brother and sister Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of the neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. How did a a plague help the spread of Christianity? Well, do you think if you're nursed back to health by a follower of Jesus, you might listen to what they have to say? You think it might sound like good news they have to say? Like, let me tell you about our Lord? Yeah. Eusebius was a fourth century historian, and he writes that the deeds of the followers of Jesus, these are his own words, were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. What does that look like for me? What does that look like for you? Probably not going in the plague-infested cities, and uh, probably not. What does it look like for you Today? And tomorrow, and this week, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your schools, in the byways and the highways of your life, in your homes, which is sometimes the hardest place to have compassion. Who's suffering? Are you noticing? Are you just having sympathy? Are you maybe having empathy, which is great? Are you having compassion? That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Are you entering into their suffering? Because you love them like our Lord did. Uh, a couple years ago, we read a short story here called Rag Man. It's one of my favorite little short stories. You can find it online for free. It's just a couple pages by Walter Wenger Jr. And I love it so much because it gives us a, a beautiful aspect of who Jesus was. And the, the character, it's a fictional short story. The character's a ragman who is going through the, the, the streets of an ancient city and he's got a cart full of rags that he's pushing and he's like, Rags, rags, new rags for old. And he encounters all these different characters, and each one is struggling and suffering. And the first character we see him encounter in the story is a woman who is weeping profusely into a rag. And he tenderly steps down and takes her rag away and puts it on his own face, where he starts to cry, gives her a clean rag, and she has joy. He encounters a little girl who has a a really grotesque head injury, and she's bleeding profusely from it, and and the rag is getting soaked with blood, and he comes down tenderly, and takes her blood-soaked rag, and he puts it on his own head, where the blood starts to flow, and gives her a clean rag, and suddenly she's healed, and she's new. And the story follows, he does does this again and again and again, and quickly in time, he's a broken-down, disheveled, falling-apart shell of a human. And the narrator who's following him afar, watching in marvel and wonder, watches him go to a garbage pit in town and literally lay down and die, but he didn't stay dead, did he? For he is Jesus. And it gives this remarkable, beautiful picture of what compassion is. Entering into suffering of others for for love. And that's what we see on, on full display on the cross in this tender scene. That we could miss it and just... Just say, hey, he's making final arrangements and doing this procedural thing. There's so much more. He was suffering with those he loved. And that's true of his mom and, and his cousin and his aunts and this woman he set free. It's true of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders and the jeering crowd. It's true of me. It's true of you. Beekner's phrase earlier that compassion is stepping into the skin of another. That's the idea of incarnation. That's what the Latin word means, in the flesh, that God loves us so much that he saw the mayhem of our hearts and our world and the suffering, what we were doing to one another, and he's like, enough. And he stepped into our skin, and he hung on a tree to absorb it all onto himself to break the power of sin and death so that we may be set free. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me this week? Will we like our Lord? Will we follow him? Will we be people not only of sympathy and not only of empathy, will we be people of compassion? Will we suffer with those we love? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you. I can only pray for myself right now, God, my broken down heart. Thank you that you're a God of compassion for this guy. That you care enough about me to see my suffering and enter into that space. You don't always tell me why it's going on. I don't always understand it, but I know you're right there with me. And you love us so much, you entered our skin, and you absorbed all of our brokenness and all the evil and the pain and the death, and you transformed it into a pathway for life. And as we come to the tables this morning, those of us who follow you, we recognize that's what we're celebrating. And may that be a catalyst today, Father, to send us out into our worlds and follow you with courage and passion and be a people of compassion that will change the face of this planet for your glory. We love you, Father, and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen.